You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 27. Well, yeah, the big one there is Fat Tales. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. All right, another week, another episode of The Local Maximum. Fun show today. Uh, first, I want to give a shout out to the Beyond Coding students of 2018. Um, yeah, I just gave a workshop earlier this week or like late last week. I gave a workshop on communication in the workplace to some students from City University of New York. About 30 students came into Foursquare headquarters and we had that workshop. It was a lot of fun. I did it with uh, Mary Emily, who is on this show in episode two, talking about internationalization. So um, long time uh, collaboration between me and Mariam. And um, it was a lot of fun. I told them about this show. So I think that some of those students are listening. So uh, welcome to the show. This is uh, this is a good time to, to start in. Um, yeah, so I had a great time. Um, a lot of questions we're going to get to today. You know, is the software industry turning from big data into big algorithm? We'll discuss that. And uh, and why. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the news on AI, machine learning, as well as social media bias and censorship. And then we're going to dive into the never-ending debate on Bayesian statistics. So for most of this, you can just listen. If you're a little rusty on what Bayes' rule is, you know, Bayesian inference, Bayesian versus frequentist, or what the general disagreement is there, you can try to listen. But for some of the background on that part, uh, start at episode zero, The Great Beginning, or episode 21, Probability, Belief, and the Truth. Um, I go into that a lot, and you'll have all the background. So this whole thing got kicked off recently at an academic conference called ICCS, the Conference on Complex Systems. This was held recently in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I kind of wish I went now, because the next one is all the way in like Portugal or something like that. I just, I just don't have time for all of these. Anyway, our friend Nassim Taleb said something about Bayes or Bayesian inference there. Sounded negative from the Twitter comments, but I can't be so sure since I wasn't actually there and I didn't listen to it. There's no video. Well, it turns out that Taleb actually speaks very highly of Bayes in general. Uh, when I spoke to Aaron, as you'll see, I couldn't find this tweet, but it reads as follows from at NN Taleb. Actually, I show an anti-fragile. That's his, a, a recent book that I've read. Uh, the biggest intellectual productions came from country priests, uh, for example, Bayes. So it doesn't sound so negative on Bayes. So what is this whole thing about? Um, Aaron and I will start to get to the bottom of it. After all, there are whole books written on it. But we'll try to get to the gist of it here and kind of go over the real-world scenarios um, that, uh, that anyone can understand where uh, these instances of fat tales um, take place, and we'll define that, because that's what we do on the program. All right, so without further ado, um, let's get started. Let's get Aaron on the program. Aaron, welcome back to The Local Maximum. It's been a while. Yeah, it feels like it's been been weeks, and, and I guess it has. Yes, I had to, uh, three interviews um, and a loan show when I was traveling in, in Ireland and from Belfast or outside of Belfast. So uh, it's been, yeah, we've had a, a string of interviews. I have had success in, there are individuals out there who are interested in coming on the show. So that's a good thing. Awesome. 
While you were in Northern Ireland, did you, by any chance, place a bid on the uh, the castle from Game of Thrones? I heard the uh, the castle they used for River Run is is up for sale for a very reasonable price. No, I didn't see the castle from River Run, but I did see the King's Road with the uh, ah. with the. With the with the bent trees, I don't know how to describe it. The, the, it's yeah, it's it's a, a an arboreal arch. I'm I'm sure that's not the proper term, but yeah, you get there and there's thousands of tourists taking pictures. <laughs> um, I, I just recently heard a, a thing about that. Um, there's there's apparently a word in German, much much like there are many words in German that do not have simple translations into English, but it's it's the word for going to a place of which you have seen. You know, thousands of of pictures, like for example, Old Faithful, and experiencing it mm. there along with hundreds or thousands of other tourists, and how the experience of actually being there is less than the experience of viewing the you know the professional photographs and and video of the place. That's interesting. That's interesting. No, I, I think that being there in this case, and in some of like the the natural you know the Giant's Causeway in in Northern Ireland, what is something that awesome. like the pictures really can't capture. Um, but it is kind of, it is kind of, it is kind of, you, you kind of feel like, you know, I want all these people to get out of the way. Yeah. Who are these, who are these damn tourists ruining my tourism? <laughs> seriously, seriously. It's, they're not even Irish. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So we're going to start out today, uh, before we get into the meat of it, which is the, um, the, uh, challenge to Bayesianism. Uh, let's talk about some of the news stories that we're following. Tell me what you got, Aaron. Uh, so I saw one come across my desk this this past week about uh, artificial intelligence in in the the military industrial sphere, uh, and it turns out that uh, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, is is soliciting for uh, research proposals in in what they're calling a uh, LWLL or a Learning with Less Labels program, uh, and and I guess the the main thrust is is they want to find a way to reduce the the amount of of labeled data your your training set to to train up an AI system by six orders of magnitude, um, which which is a huge deal. Um, and I think one of the, the, the big motivators is that in, in their particular case, a lot of times they can't open source the labeling effort uh, like you can in some commercial or industrial applications uh, because the training data they may be dealing with uh, could in fact be you know, classified or or extremely limited in, in breadth because We've we've only witnessed this type of event happening a handful of times, uh, as opposed to show me uh, six million pictures of stop signs to help train my my uh, automated car stop sign recognition algorithm. Well, yeah, let me tell you why this particular story is interesting to me because I remember, you know, back probably back around the turn of the decade, maybe around when I joined Foursquare when I was in uh, grad school, let's say 2010, the big rage was big data. You remember this, right? There's big data is a term that oh, yeah. is still used, but maybe not as much anymore. I still it's, use it. it's, it's in way too many resumes, that's for sure. Right, right. So it was just starting back then. And the idea was, you know, back then, and to some extent still true today, the, the mantra was, if you want smarter machines, if you want uh, better machine learning algorithms, don't worry about the algorithm, just get more data. Because more data is going to mean smarter outcomes. You bang your head against the wall with an algorithm, maybe you'll get a slightly better al- outcome, but uh, 
more data is way more is 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 cheaper. And and this is definitely the tack that a a Facebook or a Google would would like to take because they have access to way way more data than almost anybody else. Yeah, and you know, yes. So and, and my experience has been somewhat confirmed by this, but on the other hand, I've also noticed that big data comes with a lot of costs. Um, first of all, if you have a lot of data, um, you have uh, much larger memory requirements. Um, and oftentimes, the algorithms will take longer to run because you're you're running through a much bigger data set. And there's a, also, you're kind of more limited in which algorithms you can run because they oftentimes have to be parallelized and all that. So it always seemed to me that the industry should come back around and work on the algorithm at some point when it becomes more cost effective. And seeing this headline makes me think, are we heading towards that point? Yeah, there's, there's definitely some drivers going there, or, or at least smart people are, are, are thinking about it. Uh, because right. Also with the, ad, with the success of, of deep learning, you know, now being much more successful than it was, say, eight years ago. Eight years ago, I feel like we all knew it was going to be successful, but it's like, okay, now algorithms can make a big difference and, in a way that they couldn't before. Absolutely. Yeah. So if, if any of our, our listeners are uh, deep into, into that, that area of research and, and are interested in, in submitting proposals, uh, looks like time, time is running out because you need to have abstracts in by August 21st and full proposals by October 8th. But uh, there's, there's certainly government money to be spent on, on solving this problem. Well, what I want to know from machine learning engineers, and if you want to talk to, if you want to weigh in at localmaxradio@gmail.com, is, you know, has big data run its course? Are we going? Not that, you know, it's the end of big data, of course not. But like, is there? A, do you also sense a focus on algorithm? The the focus going from more data to more algorithm now, or is is that uh, is that the wrong direction? That's that's what I would like to know. Um, okay, moving on. Uh, well, I guess the, the only other thing I wanted to add to that is that, that even if we don't end up seeing the, the results of this publicly, because uh, because being a defense project, it, it may not be released in its entirety, just seeing uh, what what groups and, and you know, companies and, and uh, academic groups are, are involved in this uh, research will, will be instructive to see who's kind of on the cutting edge of, of some of this type of work. Well, yeah, if you see that university and someone, you know, a few months later comes out with a paper of like how to use less data, you know, you might. Um, Yeah, I didn't find anything as impactful. I just saw I just found a robot that uh, can find Waldo. I I don't know. I I feel like that may have a more direct impact on me because it's likely to ruin my children's childhood by taking away their job. Um, Whereas this DARPA stuff we won't see for years. Yeah, so this is ridiculous. This robot opens up Waldo and then it like it searches the whole book and it finds it and then it drops a mechanical hand. I mean, it would be enough really if it just <laughs> took a picture and then showed you on a screen where in the picture it was, but no, it's got to drop a mechanical hand uh to show you that it's I don't know what it's trying to prove, but uh that uh, that works too, and then somebody noted in the comments, isn't the last page of that book like a thousand Waldos, and you have to figure out which one is the different one? So I don't know how well it will do with. Well, that. and and I guess the the algorithm they talk about using there is specifically looking at faces, uh, and and as I re- recollect, once you've found Waldo on every page, you have to go back and and you have to find was you got to find the wizard and Wenda and. I, I don't remember his dog's name, and and then other things like where are all those glasses and. 
and his staff, uh, the wizard staff, and and other items. So so they I, per- perhaps it would be trivial to uh, to train this robot to also find those things. But but until they do, there's there's still a need for small children. Yep. All right. Moving on, let's talk about this Twitter poll that I had. And I gave you, I gave the results out last week, um, but the Twitter poll was on the subject of shadow banning by Twitter, which of course people raised eyebrows. They're like, how is Twitter promoting this when it's critical of Twitter? I don't know if it's that critical. Of t- I, well, anyway, they did. So <laughs> they let me. Um, and, and I think a human actually did check it before it went through. Um, so just to review, shadow banning is the idea that, well, shadow banning technically is the idea that Twitter can ban you without even knowing or can kind of mute you or silence you. Um, but in this particular case, it was some Republican politicians who noticed that they were no longer coming up on autocomplete. So they were asking, were we shadow banned in the sense that we weren't coming up in the search terms anymore? And of course, this gives... a. a a wide range of opinions as to what's really going on. So 50% of the people think that these politicians just either imagined it because they think they're more important than they are, or they just made it up to get attention. That's 50%. But, you know, the other 50% think, no, it's real. Um, And among them, it's 8% say it's a random glitch, which is actually what Twitter said, it seems like. Uh, 23% say... It's left-leaning QA bias, and 19% said it was done deliberately by employees. So interesting results of our non-scientific poll that, as a data scientist, I would never take, I would never make decisions off of, but um, interesting nonetheless. Yeah, I, I, I think I fall in a, a somewhat similar camp to you uh, on, on, on this, in, in that I think is most likely a, a perhaps unconscious or, or unintentional QA bias. However, I, I do think that there are some people who were complaining about this who fall into that first category that, that uh, I, I believe there are people who are, are being their, their frequency of shopping results is being reduced by the algorithm. Uh, but then there are some people who they, they see that they're not uh, popping up as much as they think they should. And that's just because they have an overinflated sense of self. I think there is a, a, a correct answer among these to what is actually going on, but that does not address all of the cases where people are claiming that they've been shadow banned for the for the broader use of that term. Right. So I don't I want to write a little more about QA bias because I don't I don't know if it's a term. I might have made it up. Uh, we'll see. But the idea is that um, yes, it's it was a mistake. But if the mistake were made by, it's it's kind of a mistake of neglect. So if it were done by, if it, if that mistake had occurred, let's say on, um, you know, Barack Obama, they would never have launched it. They would have caught it before it got out, just because you know there a lot of them maybe follow Obama and they wouldn't, you know, they would notice the employees themselves notice. Just like at Foursquare, if you know we're testing a change to our ratings algorithm and we noticed that like our favorite restaurant is getting screwed, then we would look into it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just like on, on maybe to use a, a less in the news example today, um, Wikipedia, uh, and, and perhaps it happens less now than it used to, but it used to be all the rage that people would go and, and deface is probably too strong a word, but they would, uh, embellish someone or something's Twitter page with, or I'm I'm, mi- I'm missing my, my platforms here. Someone or something's Wikipedia page with uh, 
unverified facts, some of which were believable and some of which were quite outlandish. And unless it was a kind of high traffic page that had a dedicated set of, of moderators, it could go unnoticed for quite some time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and so that's, that's potentially what's going on here is, is that there, there are changes being made, uh, perhaps not maliciously, that are having an, an impact and they're slipping through the, through the cracks because it's not in a particular place that's being actively checked for. Yeah, yeah. And my point is, though, that it could be, you know, you because I think that the political leanings of the of Twitter employees are more democratic, a, a, a politician of maybe equal importance or equal footing would not be um, would not be treated equally in the long run. Yeah. And so that kind of I, I was asked about this a few times. I was asked about this on uh, on Run Your Mouth podcast a few weeks ago. And so I've been kind of, you know, kind of adjusting my thinking on this. I, I did a little more thinking on this. Well, and I know you mentioned last week that that uh, because of how Twitter polls work, you had to n- narrow it down to four options. But I think one of the the big, uh, if, if you were to add a fifth option, um, it would be to break that, that uh, 19% deliberate by employees out into rogue employees versus kind of a, a top-down orchestrated effort. Right, right. Or, or even like not rogue, but just like, you know, by, by a team. Um, yeah. So it's, it's that and rogue. And it's also the first one is also needs to be broken up that 50%. Is it imagined or made up? Because those are actually two very different things. One is, I think I should be, I think I'm more important than I am. And so I'm going to complain. And the other is, Hey, let's just, let's just say this. And that way it'll get people whipped up and we'll, um, get news about ourselves and we'll get, uh, you know, we'll be able to fundraise off this. So definitely the extreme examples can be uh, can be broken down a little bit. Um, okay, now I do want to follow one more news story that's related to Twitter in an interesting way. So the other day, uh, almost all of the social networks and platforms out there banned um, popular conspiracy theorists Alex Jones from their platform that includes YouTube and Facebook. Is, is that his official um, uh, uh, banner now? Cons- conspiracy theorist? That's just that's just <laughs> what I said. Someone asked me the other day, oh, isn't he like the uh, conspiracy theorist or racist? And I'm like, I think he's the only conspiracy theorist that isn't, doesn't go on, on uh, with all the racist stuff. But I could, he usually just shouts. And, yeah, and I, I haven't and listened says, to enough of his material to to verify that that there aren't racist conspiracies in there. But but that's not the first thing that jumps to I, mind. From what I've seen, there really aren't. Um, but he he does have a lot of. Um, he, he has no shortage of other kinds you know, of crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then sometimes, but sometimes it is very entertaining, and sometimes, sometimes he's not wrong a hundred percent of the time. Um, sometimes he can get through a show where you're like, okay, that's that's not. It's not so, uh, w- would yeah. you have him on your show if if he were willing to be interviewed? Of course. What are you talking about? I get like thousands. <laughs> I don't think they would. Um, they wouldn't ban my show just because he was on my show. I think. No, no, I, I don't think they would. Uh, but, but perhaps that that could be one of your branding uh, building blocks. Is that that along with Twitter, we are we are one place that that will welcome Alex Jones. <laughs> yeah. So you, we didn't you, get to that. So Twitter, Twitter is is the one that got embroiled in the shadow banning thing, and yet they're the only ones who are leaving Alex Jones up. And so I was questioning: Well, are they the ones 
uh, are they the ones who are going to go into being the more censorship oriented, you know, platforms? And from this one anecdote, it looks like, no, they're going to go more towards the free speech side. But again, it's just one example. And and this could change by the time this episode airs. Oh, sure, sure. Um, which is very, very shortly. Um, yeah, well, I'm going to get, uh, we'll see what kind of reaction we get for that. This uh, so have, have we officially okay. issued a challenge for him to come on the show? Is, is, is that what no, happened or no? no? no. Okay. I'm, I'm still building up my audience here. Uh, and then I'll go after people with a uh, larger audience. Fair enough. Um, and also, it's not like he's looking for an audience now. Uh, apparently, from, from what I've heard, uh, this banning doesn't really work. It sort of backfires these days. I mean, he's got his own site. He's got its own servers he could easily host himself on, and he can do live streams, and people will listen. And so I, there's kind of a Streisand effect where if you ban someone, then the news covers the fact that you ban them, and then it makes them more popular. So I'm a little bit... Uh, you know, even if you wanted to fight ideas like this or just fight, uh, you know, against, you know, fake news like this, I don't think that this whole banning thing is necessarily the best way to go. Yeah, and, and that that absolutely makes sense. Uh, and I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it it, it kind of argues in the face of, of some of the theories people have been put out putting out in the last year or so about, uh, you know, Twitter and Facebook needing to be regulated because they, they own the public square and uh, as, as well as this being a, you know, an orchestrated move by all of the tech companies together because they, they all banned him at the same time that if it, if it were really that, you know, kind of uh, Illuminati esque orchestrated maneuver, then not only would they have banned him, but there would have been a complete media blackout and they wouldn't even report on the banning. Um, and, and that's, yeah. that's not what we've seen. We've seen the absolute opposite. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a clumsy, you know, just it's like a clumsy thing where you sue someone. Wasn't it the yeah, Streisand yeah. effect, right? And then, and then, and then, whatever you're trying to stop from getting out there gets out there even more than it otherwise would. I think you know most uh, PR people these days, like particularly uh, crisis people, realize this. Now. The good ones, I should hope. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so. Let's get into the meat of this because I've been preaching the uh, from the gospel of of Bayesianism since the start of yes, the show. Yes, back to Bayes. And actually, yes, and I found out that um, I actually found an article that I wrote back in 2010 about machine superintelligence, which is interesting because I was talking about that with Christian Hubs a little bit a few weeks ago. But um, I, I wrote that article in 2010 when I was first first kind of um, grappling with these ideas. And even then, I was talking about you know Bayesian statistics and Bayesian thinking as a as a good way to go. And I remember back in 2010, that was kind of you know some of the the initial work I did and sort of reading up on all of this. Now, the um, the interesting thing that happened this week was uh, Nassim Taleb Talib. Sorry, I should pronounce his name correctly. I read a lot of his books. Um, he's he's very active on Twitter, isn't he? He's, he likes to he he likes to wind people up. Uh, but in in the, in a good way. I mean, it gets it gets his. Yeah, I was going to say he did not pull his punches like, when when he thought somebody uh, failed to understand his argument. Yeah, yeah, um, right. So now he's been sort of frustrated by kind of fighting against the 
Bayesianistas. He said that in his uh, in his in his Twitter post, and so I kind of wanted to see, well, what's going on? Does he have, you know, is he turning into a frequentist? Is he sort of uh, making arguments against, you know, Bayesian statistics? Is a challenge, you know, to what I've been talking about on this show for many for many months. And so the idea for me, first of all, is, well, if I've been uh, preaching something for many months and it's wrong, I want to know, or if there's a challenge to it and I need to address that, then I want to know. I am kind of open to being wrong on some of this stuff. But um, first, you know, before even going into that, I wanted to dive deep into, um, you know, what he was really saying, you know, because that was kind of a struggle. I kind of had to dive down because what he was really saying was not so much uh, a contradiction as to what I was, I've been saying uh, after all. So first of all, I want to point out that I looked into a lot of his past writings and he's been just as skeptical of p-values and frequentist methods uh, as we have. And not only that, he's done multiple studies and multiple Monte Carlo simulations on um, p-values and frequentist methods and shown how it produces phony results. So he's totally not in the frequentist camp, uh, I would say. And he said good things about Bayes, the person, and his contribution um, in the book Anti-Fragile. I think he said, uh, oh God, I don't know the exact quote, but he said something he said something along the lines of my 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 link isn't working right now, but he said something along the lines of um, you know some of the great um, some of the great breakthroughs in mathematics and science have come from people who you know were not considered the experts of the day, um, but were you know more not amateurs, but you know, for for example, Bayes was a, a, a reverend. So he, he made that example and he says, well, if he thinks that Bayes' contribution was one of the great contributions, then he can't really be that much of an anti-Bayesian, could he? Um, so what's he on a rampage against now? I'll let his tweet sum it up. Um, I'm just going to read his tweet uh, completely. He says, the idea behind Bayesian approaches is that if two people have different priors, they will eventually converge to the same estimation uh, via updating. A wrong prior is therefore okay. Under fat tails, if you have the wrong prior, uh, you never get there. And then he cited his paper. And then he said, Capiche? I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. I think so. All right. So um, that's sort of that's sort of his post. Any questions about that before I continue on? Well, yeah, the big one there is fat tails. Talk to me about that, because it seems like that's that's the crux of of the argument here, is that there's a special case where this breaks down. Tell me more about what that actually means. Right. So a fat tail is a situation where um, if an unlikely event occurs, then it occurs, you know, really, really severely. So an example he gives, and I'm kind of skipping around here, but... Um, an example that he gives is he was arguing against uh, some data that Steven Pinker presented, I believe, in his book called Enlightenment Now. Um, he presents, a, Pinker presents like a series of arguments that says, you know, the world is getting better and better. And I read through a lot of those statistics, and a lot of them are very convincing. You know, uh, the economy is growing, um, life expectancies are 
growing. Um, you know, knowledge is growing. People are smarter, all that sort of stuff. But one of the statistics in there is that there's less death in wars. And so the idea is, well, okay, if you look at the last 10 years, 20 years, sure, there have been a lot of wars. I mean, we've been at war this whole time. But the number of deaths in those wars are less compared to previous wars in history. Um, but uh, we have this small risk of a global thermonuclear war, in which case we're going to have you know, way more deaths than any time in history. So, and, and then also I would point out like, what would that statistic look like in 1914 on the eve of World War I? It probably would look better than what they would, uh, what they would actually um, experience over the next few years and really the next, you know, 30, 40 years. So that's sort of a fat tail. I, so one common misconception is that a fat tail means that the extreme events occur more often, but it's not that. It's that the extreme events are just really more extreme. I'm 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 trying to visualize it on a on a plot, and and I'm it's difficult to do. It, yeah, I'm I'm picturing what you said. It's not as opposed to what what you said it is. So I, I understand why people make that that frequent mis uh, misconception. Yeah, I, I don't even want to start describing plots right now. I mean, that's a visual thing in a auditory format. So <laughs> let's forget the plot. It's just, if an extreme but, event, an extreme event might be less probable, but if it occurs, it's really extreme. So, so really you need to think not only what is the probability of an event occurring, but you need to weight that with the severity of, of the outcome. Right, right. And if you have this fat tail situation, he says that uh, the uh, Bayesian priors don't, um, don't converge. So let me back up a little bit and let me talk about how this fits in with some of the stuff I've been talking about on this show. Because I presented the Bayesian point of view of the world as the one that makes the most sense in that episode. I think it was 21. And, you know, the Bayesian view of the world is one that's going to steer you in the right direction. So if you listen to episode 21, Probability, Belief, and the Truth, I sort of talked about my epistemology, why I believe what I believe, and I kind of got to the bottom of why this is true. And Bayesian approaches are great for some of the hard questions. I didn't put it above kind of trial and error and also just, you know, making assumptions first because I said you kind of have to do that before you get to the Bayesian approach. But I think uh, that in most of the cases that you think about day to day, if two people have different beliefs and different priors, but they are both relatively open-minded, then the data will cause their beliefs to converge. So I want to talk now about the cases where you know, Taleb's argument um, doesn't work. And I, I'm sure that he realizes that, but I, I think that being in, you know, being in finance and talking about some of the systems that he works with, he probably runs into people that ignore the fat tail time and time again. So, um, but let's talk about, there, there are times when there, you're not dealing with fat tails and then you don't have to worry about this, I, I think. So let me, let me give an example, all right? So, Let's give like a toy example. Let's talk about the coin that could be fair or it could be double-sided on heads. Which, okay? which we've, we've talked about this coin before. Right, right. Now, let's say that you, Aaron, I give you the coin and you say, I'm not really, yeah, I'm going to be a Bayesian, but I'm going to be very lopsided. I think that there's only a one in a billion chance this is double-sided. I think it's, you know, um, billion minus one over billion chance 
that it's actually a fair coin. So your belief on the topic is like, it's damn near impossible that this coin is double-sided, right? One in a billion is a I'm, is a I'm basically story. only saying that so that I, I can defend myself from literally putting a, a probability at 100 or zero. Right, right. Okay, so what happens then? Because you didn't set it at exactly zero, I can do a little bit of Bayesian math and I can determine how long it takes before you are convinced by updating your probabilities that the coin is more likely to be double-sided because you start flipping it, right? And you get heads, 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 heads. And you keep saying, nah, 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 it's a fair coin. It's just a coincidence. Heads, 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 right? And so if you start at one in a billion, how long will it take before you think, okay, it's actually more likely that it's double-sided? And the answer to that, ready for it? Hit me with it. 30 flips. After you flip that coin 30 times, you're going to think that the coin is double-sided. And then a few more flips after that, you're convinced that it's double-sided. That's so, pretty impressive, well, that- g- given, given the magnitude of my, my doubt going into it and the fact that 30 flips, yeah. I, I could do that in you know a couple minutes if I'm flipping slowly. Yeah, yeah, because it, it's, it's exponential. Because each, each, um, each time you flip the coin... Uh, it's like, well, that's twice as likely to happen in the unfair coin as the fair coin. So your your probability on that. On the other hand, though, uh, yeah. realizing if if I were to literally experience even even just fifteen flips in a row where it comes yeah. back heads every time, uh, I, I think I'm realizing that my 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 prior going in was actually a lot less than one in a million. Or, or to 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 put it right. at that number would require kind of an exaggeration of my doubt. Right, right. So you're, 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 you realize that uh, that's not really your prior. Yeah. Um, or you realize, well, I, yeah. I, I was trying to, to express doubt and I, and I overdid it, <laughs> picking right, that number. Right. Yeah, and it's okay to go back on your prior and realize, well, I probably have a hyper prior where I've, I could talk all about that. Let's not, <laughs> let's not get it. Save that for another because day. Some people, yeah, because uh, actually that is a good um, topic because uh, – you know, your your update, you kind of change your priors, and, and that is a an argument against Bayesian statistics as well. People then go back and change their priors. Well, that's not it's called a prior for a reason. How come you're doing that? You know, and that's um, and I, I think there are some justifications for that, but that that could be a whole other thing. So let's talk about the cases where the beliefs don't converge. Well, one obvious case that's that's not what Talib is talking about is that when somebody refuses to entertain the possibility at all, like you said, if they put it at exactly zero. Um, so that happens when one party hasn't thought of a hypothesis and so they haven't really searched the space enough. Like you haven't considered the fact that the coin might be double-sided. So it's like not on your radar and you just sort of miss the fact that it could be double-sided even after flipping it lots of times. And you might say, well, I have to be an idiot to do that. But actually, our machines do that all the time because if you don't program in that possibility, then it will never know, right? And so also another case is that if your hypothesis space has enough variables, like an exponentially large number of, of, of terms, and you're, like it's, like it's a uh, you know, billion-dimensional space, and you don't have like a good prior on each one, then you know you're likely to overfit the machine learning model, um, and um, and yeah, to because right, because you can't isolate which 
which variable is being influenced by the the additional incoming data, or or how to distribute that? Yeah, and that's um and and that's something that I'm struggling with now on the current product that I'm working on, which is trying to um, trying to estimate the causality of an ad. Very valuable piece of information. Very difficult to do. Actually, I'm going to talk. I have a a guest. I maybe I could say it. It's a uh, Sharon Mojrad, she's the uh, head of uh, data science at McGraw-Hill. She lives up near you in Boston, and we're going to talk about causality in a few weeks. So that'll be really interesting. Um, but neither of these cases that I talk about is, I, I think, what, what Talib is talking about. So in the paper he linked, I read through it. He's talking about this special kind of problem that comes up over and over again in finance and insurance. And that's when these rare events can be so consequential, just like you said, it's fat tails. So I talked about the war issue. Um, and he's saying that the priors that are used don't always incorporate these crazy events. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he's saying it's impossible to properly incorporate a prior or if, you know, the priors that most people incorporate don't take this into account. So that is kind of an open question that I would like to know about. If someone has more uh, insight into this, localmaxradio at gmail.com. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I do think, you know, when you're trying to figure out the relative possibility between a, a small number of, let's say, you know, finite number of like hypotheses, like let's say you know, you're trying to solve a crime and you're like, there are six people who could have committed this murder. Or in this case, in the case of Twitter, there, there are four reasons why this Twitter ban, shadow ban controversy came up. And then we're trying to look at the data. I think in that case, you're pretty safe to use uh, whatever prior, you know, y- y- your choice of prior at the beginning is not going to um, mess you up that much. Um, but when you're dealing with these infinities, or when you're dealing with these kind of exponentially weird data sets where, um, you, you know, a, an error could be off by orders of magnitude, uh, then I think you have to look because there could be a problem. Yeah. I, and, think, and that's, I think that's the, the way of thinking about it. I, I've, I didn't realize that this had Bayesian uh, implications, but, but uh, I'm, I'm going to rail on something that that uh, has bugged me at work recently um and okay. so i'm i'm not in sales uh but i work alongside a bunch of sales guys and one of the things they have to do is uh i do too is is, is forecasting uh and so they'll come up with a, a list of all the opportunities that that we have and and they'll assign both dollar values and and probabilities to those uh and then it, you know you add that all up and we can say okay for for 2019 uh, our expected value is is x because uh, you know for example we we have this 50 this opportunity which we have a 50% chance of winning and it's worth 5 million dollars so we're going to put that down as a 2.5 million dollar uh, expected outcome um, and for for first of all if you have reasonable likelihoods assessed to those then then there's some utility to that um, if you don't, then then it becomes absolute garbage. Uh, but but then as those percentages become lower and lower and closer and closer to zero, so if you have a you know a a, a program that you think you have a ten percent chance of of winning, but it's a hundred million dollar program, so is that is that really should that go into your forecast as as a, a ten million dollar expected outcome? 
And, and if, if those numbers go even lower uh, in terms of percentages, should those really even be on that sheet? Or, or what, what are those doing there? Because it's, it, I see. in a way, it starts to throw everything else out of perspective because you can, you can have a, a very low probability but very high value event in there that skews your forecast. Or conversely, you could have a, uh, a, a very high probability uh, item in there. And, and if that doesn't pan out, that's going to have a huge impect uh, potentially on, on hitting those right. expected so you're values. Saying you, you have a 10% chance of, uh, of the 10 million, and that's worth a million. You have a 1% chance of the 100 million, and you have like one out of a thousand chance of the $1 billion. And uh, yeah, that, when data is distributed like that, it can really screw you up if you don't think about it and you're just... Yeah, where, where it works great is, is if you, you know, maybe there are, uh, you know, 10 programs that are each worth 10 million that you each have a 10% chance on. And so, okay, you know, if, when sure. we look at that, the odds are pretty good we're going to get one of them. But, but, yeah, but that's... But the data, that's not power law distributed data. That's right. not fat tail. That's just normal... And so that's that's kind of the point that that you know that that's the counter example. Yeah. So so not only are there a lot of cases where people don't take them to account where maybe they should, but even when you do take them to account, un, unless you're very aware of of how you're using the data and and what's really behind it, it's it's easy for that to pollute your perception. Yep. When you're talking about mean value with um, exponentially distributed data, then you get into trouble. <laughs> That's, I think, the bottom line. Um, now, I do want to ask myself, um, do I incorporate this idea into my work at Foursquare or anything else that I've done? Because I, I thought about that, and I actually really do think that a lot of the stuff that I've done, I really haven't had to worry about the fat tail distribution. I'm open to the idea that I'm wrong, but I, I think that what I'm doing is justified for the types of things I've, I've worked on. So, for example, like in something like spam detection or sentiment analysis, there's not, you know, a high probability of being, there's not a high cost to being wrong. Something is either spam or it's not. It's either positive or it's negative. They're binary classifications. And so there's no extreme events to screw it up. Um, I do think that my current project, which with attribution, uh, which again, as I tell this audience, is measuring the effectiveness of ads based on all the data we can find. That is a complex system. And so, I mean, I don't need to, I don't think that I need to worry about wildly successful or unsuccessful um, ad campaigns because I don't think there's an ad campaign that like, you know, causes everyone to see it to go into a mesmerizing trance and then go visit the store. But even if there is, that's like- the, You don't have Hypnotoad as a client? Yeah, that, that like maxes, yeah, right. Uh, that kind of maxes out where you can, how, how good you can be in the ad. But I, I, I think that um, I do need to worry about the effects that all these variables can have. Um, and I'm not sure that there's a connection with this problem I face now with the types of things that Taleb is talking about with the fat tail. Um, I'm not 100% sure whether there's a connection, but I, but I think there might be. <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll end it on that. Well, so, so that, that makes me think of a question, and, and maybe we can't answer this here and now, but it's something to think on, is how, how do you identify when, when you're dealing with those tails? What, 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 are, what are the signs to look for? Because uh, it's it's easy to go back and 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 with you know with perfect knowledge, uh, which which is another thing we've talked about uh, previously. Uh, but but 
it, it's easy to go back after something's gone wrong and see, oh, this is this is where you screwed up. You you didn't take X into account. Yeah. Uh, but it's a lot harder to see that when you're in the midst of it. That that what you are overlooking could could be critical. Yeah, I mean, I guess it would be first of all. I mean the the idea is <laughs> I, I'm kind of I'm trying to think because. I, I think that most cases when it comes to like sort of real life situations are a lot of normalcy with sporadic extreme events. And so if you're dealing with something where an extreme event would, would matter to you, then, um, then yeah, you should think about it. I guess if I could think about, for example, insurance, right? Some insurance. Yeah, I was going to say that brings us back to insurance. Insurance premiums are 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 capped, right? So an individual, let's say they're like, okay, this insurance is capped at like a million dollars. We won't pay out anymore. So for that individual, it's it's there's a maximum. But then you might think, okay, what if you know? Let's say I have uh, property insurance, and like the whole city is um, is destroyed. Well, then I might need reinsurance, and then if the reinsurance fails, well, that means the whole planet is destroyed. And that's we shouldn't have to worry <laughs> about that anyway. But like, I, I guess the question is, maybe you shouldn't ask when is the case where I have to worry about this. Maybe you should flip that around. And say I always have to worry about this. When's the case where I can safely say I don't have to worry about this? And that's when maybe you're trying to decide between a few different choices and you could be sure that there isn't an additional choice that you have to worry about. Um, but, um, yeah, that's the best answer I can give right now off the top of my head. I don't know. What do you think? It, it sounds like it's getting dangerously in, into the whole predicting the future. And, and, and we've, we've talked both, uh, in person and, and on the show before about, uh, some of the, the dangers of, of forecasting. Um, right. and, and not, not that, that fat tails only exist in forecasting, but I, it sounds like that's a big piece of it that, well, that forecasting would be predicting the future and black swan events and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, forecasting something to keep in the back of your head. Um, you know, economic news would be an obvious one. Um, I think, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm I'm sure that there are some some investors over at Tesla who are are wishing that they had uh, taken some of the fat tales of what will Elon do next uh, into account a little bit more carefully. Well, yeah, I mean, if if he hits it big, it's really big. So, that's, but but it also yeah. seems like he could implode almost at any moment. <laughs> right, right. Well, so long as you're invested, I mean. A lot of times with these investments, it's like, okay, I can lose everything, but I know how much I put into it, but my upside is unlimited. Mm. And so you want to be in those investments because, and you want to be in several of them because, well, I mean, that's the idea behind a venture capital fund. Right. Like your, your hits make up for your misses. Your misses are, you can only lose what you put into it, but your hits can go sky high. You know, hopefully you're finding the next you know, huge home run or even just, you know, a series of triples that'll give you great success in the long run. But as I've heard a, a, a VC speak, I think it was someone from Fast FF Capital. Is that Fast Forward Capital or Fast Future Capital? I, I don't remember, but I'll have to remember. I think he said, um, you don't find out if you're a good VC until you're about ready to retire, <laughs> you know, for like decades <laughs> because of the, you know, because of that randomness. So... 
All right. I think we're going to leave it there. Anything else that you've got for us, Aaron? Anything, any last thoughts? Uh, I, I think you've, you've given me a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah. Um, All right. I'm going to be well, trying to avoid these pitfalls. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> on your day to day. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. If you have any comments on this one, I'm I I feel like we don't have all the answers today. We usually have all the answers, but uh, hey, this is uh, this is something we're learning along the rest of the audience. So please give us a uh, send us a a comment at localmaxradio at gmail dot com if uh, if you want to weigh in on this topic, and we'll read it on the show because this is a this is a pretty fascinating one. This is one that we're going to cover uh, a lot going forward. All right. Have a good uh, week, Aaron. Maybe I'll see you next week. Yeah, uh, let's you know up, update our priors and uh, we'll talk next week. That's the show. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you want to keep up, remember to follow The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at MaxClock. Have a great week. Feel the power. She said, I don't care what you say. You're going to see me shine. Yes, yes, I know I just did three interviews in a row with every person named Chris, but each Chris was very different and each Chris brought something to the program. So I'll let Chris Pye explain.